And uh, it's now uh, nine o'clock, so the, um, uh, the Swiss time uh, keeping, and by the way, Tom is quite right about that, it's a national emergency if a train anywhere in Switzerland is more than a minute late. Uh, I'm not joking, you know. Questions would be asked in the Swiss Parliament if that happened. Uh, so, you know, with the view of that, we are, we are going to uh, pro progress on now. Now, what I want to do in this talk is to talk about, uh, you've heard about, if you like, the origins of classical liberal ideas uh, from Tom. I'm going to talk about how these ideas spread around the world uh, in the 19th century and subsequently in the 20th century, particularly more recently. Now, there is a very kind of common notion held by both supporters uh, of classical liberalism in, say, the United States or Europe, but also by many of their critics, uh, that classical liberalism is essentially a Western idea. Uh, that it's essentially an idea thought up by people in Western Europe and to some extent the United States and then imposed on the rest of the planet or, in the views of many people, it's essentially a kind of uh, rationalization for selfish sectional Western interests. Uh, and uh, this view is held very widely amongst what you might call third world liberationists, uh, opponents of classical liberalism, uh, as well as by supporters. There are some people uh, who would actually go even further uh, and argue that uh, classical liberal ideas are not even just Western, they're even more specific and particular than that in their origins. So a British politician whom some of you will have heard of called Daniel Hannan, uh, last year published a book called How We Invented Freedom, a rather presumptuous title, I thought. Uh, and the, the basic idea was that um, freedom, the idea of freedom, constitutional government, the rule of law, all these classical liberal ideals, that was an invention uh, of uh, les Anglo-Saxons, as the French call us. Uh, and that basically it was an Anglo-American invention, uh, you know, conceived at uh, Runnymede in 1215 and then gradually developed by uh, the British, or more specifically the English, actually. Now, uh, I like Dan, but I have to say I think that is absolute tosh. Uh, but both, both as regards the me Middle Ages, uh, but also even more so as regards the modern world. Because one of the things that you find in the modern world is that liberalism classical liberal ideals, the ideal of personal liberty, the rule of law, uh, open markets and exchange, uh, constitutional government, these are not peculiar to Europe. There are advocates of these ideas all over the world. Now, it is true, as we'll see, that many of the, uh, if you like, most worked out versions of these ideas were first produced in Europe by thinkers like John Locke, John Stuart Mill, Montesquieu, and others. But... Uh, these ideas, when they were taken to other parts of the world, were not simply taken on board as a kind of new suit of clothes, rather they were adapted. What happened was that people, as we'll see, is that people in those other parts of the world took these ideas and then, if you like, used them to explore and develop their own indigenous traditions of liberty. Now, uh, as, you, as I said, uh, the sort of notion that you often get is that really, in the world of the late 18th and very early 19th century, uh, liberalism is a European phenomenon. Now, it's worth saying that classical liberalism uh, first appears, as it says here, in the very late 18th and early 19th century. The ideas had been around before then, but as a self-aware, self-conscious political movement, liberalism, in its classical sense, 
is a creature of roughly the 1790s to the end of the 1820s. That's when it first appears. The very word liberal as a political label is first used in Spain, uh, where it's used to describe the people who supported the Cadiz Constitution of 1814, the liberales, the freedom lovers, as opposed to their opponents who supported the autocratic rule of the Bourbons, who were known as the serviles, the servile ones. Uh, a label that we should try to revive, I think. Um, and so, essentially, as I say, liberalism appears uh, all around the shores of the Atlantic, uh, essentially, in the late 18th and early 19th century. Now, we all know that it's found initially in the US for the founding, in Britain, and particularly in Scotland, where you have the Scottish Enlightenment, people like David Hume, Adam Smith, and then subsequently others, <coughs> Thomas Jeffrey, and people like that. But it also appears in a number of other parts of the world, notably in other parts of Western Europe and in Latin America. Take, for example, this chap. Uh, this is a fellow called Karl Theodor Velke. Uh, he is a German uh, journalist, university professor, uh, politician in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, he's a member of the provincial parliament of Baden, uh, down in southwest Germany. Uh, he is a great advocate of constitutional government free speech in particular, and the general full array of liberal rights and principles. He's one of the great founders of German liberalism. And in fact, liberalism appears very early in Germany uh, and uh, spreads very rapidly, particularly in southwest Germany and in the Rhineland, the areas around uh, from Frankfurt north up to uh, Cologne and where the Ruhr now is. And as well as people like uh, Velke, you have people like his friend and colleague, Karl von Rotteck, uh, and Friedrich Bassmann, the man who is uh, essentially the leader of the German faction uh, in the uh, liberal faction, I should say, in the revolution in Germany in 1848. And by 1848, uh, it appears that liberalism is in the ascendant in Germany. Uh, it's the rapidly rising uh, political force in most of German uh, politics. And this continues even after their failure uh, in the revolution of 1848, when the Frankfurt Diet uh, doesn't agree to uh, or successfully establish a kind of German constitution. Uh, and even as late as the 1860s, you'll find that German liberalism uh, is very much the kind of coming wave uh, of uh, politics in that part of Europe. Uh, of course, something happens, but more of that later. On the other hand, it's not just in Germany. Uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, once famously described France as the most hopeless country in the world where classical liberalism is concerned. Uh, and I have to say, if you look at things like current French opinion polls, you can see what he was talking about. Uh, the Economist magazine did a survey of opinion in European countries, uh, in the EU countries, I should say, uh, a few years ago. And one of the things that emerged from that, that France was a total, complete outlier. Uh, one of the questions was, do you think that the economy should be run broadly on free market lines, or do you think that it should be a state-controlled and socialist economy? Uh, and in pretty much every country in Europe, about 60% uh, thought that it should be a broadly free market economy, except in France, where that only reached 20%. Uh, and uh, the, the, um, uh, so you can see what Hayek was talking about. But in fact, uh, France is actually, again, a place with a great tradition of classical liberal thinking with many great thinkers who produce a lot of ideas and analyses uh, which are their own creation. They're not part of the, uh, any tradition they borrowed from uh, the British. Now, here's a key figure in that tradition. Uh, this is Germain de Stael. 
she was the daughter of Necker, one of the last finance ministers uh, of Louis XVI. Uh, a brilliant woman, uh, spoke about half a dozen languages, uh, was a great literary critic, virtually invented the sort of idea of comparative studies of national literature. Uh, a great historian wrote a great account of the French Revolution, which basically explained how and why it all went wrong. Uh, and also a great opponent of Napoleon. Uh, when she met him, she said subsequently in one of her letters that she had decided within about 10 minutes of first meeting him that he was the most unpleasant little man she'd ever had the misfortune to meet. Uh, and her view of uh, him and her view of his policies and politics uh, never wavered, and this was mutual. Napoleon hated her intensely, uh, not least because he saw her as a great threat uh, to the kind of regime that he was trying to create in France. And she was forced to go into exile and to live at her uh, father's house at Copay, near Lake Geneva, where she created what effectively was one of the world's first think tanks. Uh, she had a whole collection uh, of intellectuals basically either visiting with her, staying with her, typically for several months at a time, all writing stuff, doing research, producing uh, arguments for the press. Uh, and she spent most of her life uh, both laying into Napoleon and the Napoleonic regime, uh, but also developing uh, a whole set of theories about what the nature of liberty was and why, as I say, things had taken such a terrible turn for the worse during the reign of terror in the French Revolution. One of the people who spent a lot of time with her was one of the great French liberal thinkers, a man called Benjamin Constant, uh, who was her lover, one of her many lovers, I should say, uh, for uh, quite a while, uh, and, but who also is a very, very important political thinker in his own right. Uh, Constant wrote a kind of novel called Adolphe, which is a sort of autobiographical novel, which is partly about his relationship with Germaine. Uh, it's brilliantly written, but very unkind, I think it's fair to say. But she's, the, she's one of the early figures with Constant, with a number of other people, uh, like Destou de Tracy uh, and the Abbe Grégoire, of the classical liberal movement in 19th century France, which again, uh, as I say, is a very, very powerful one in the politics of uh, 19th century France, particularly under the July monarchy, as it's called, from 1830 to 1848, but also even under Napoleon III and the Second Empire, and then particularly, of course, under the Third Republic. You've also got it in Latin America. Uh, one of the things that happens, of course, in the uh, era of uh, the Atlantic Revolution, as one historian once called it, is the sudden upsurge of revolt in Latin America, where the, uh, in the 1820s, the Latin American countries throw off the uh, rule of Spain and become independent states in their own right. Uh, this, of course, is the leading figure in that moment, Simon Bolivar, uh, the liberator. Uh, a great man, a truly great man, uh, and also a great classical liberal. Uh, if you read Bolivar's speeches, his writings, his correspondence, uh, it becomes very, very clear that he quite explicitly and self-consciously, that is what his ideology is. He believes in individual liberty, he believes in the rule of law, he believes in constitutional government, not the kind of arbitrary and capricious government uh, that you had under the Spanish regime, uh, and he believes in a society uh, of free exchange where all people are free to uh, realize the fullest potential uh, of their ability. He's not a Democrat. Uh, partly because he comes to believe towards the end of his life, when he's sadly rather disillusioned, uh, that a lot of the people in particularly his own native Colombia uh, are not yet ready to be self-governing. Uh, but he thinks that, and this is a very important thing to realize, the only way that the people can learn, as he put it, the habits of liberty, the qualities of self-government, is if they are allowed to be free. 
you cannot uh, simply reform people from on high. So you might not want to have a democratic government for a while, but you certainly want to have a free society because it's only through the exercise of freedom, people making mistakes, people learning from the mistakes, that you will develop a people and a population who have the personal qualities of self-governance, responsibility, and the rest of it, uh, which uh, make for a truly free society. Uh, I could say a very great man, uh, a legendary figure, of course, in Latin America, and now, of course, appropriated by uh, a whole bunch of people who Bolivar uh, would certainly have never had anything to do with, such as the regime in Venezuela. Uh, they described their revolution as the Bolivarian Revolution. All I can say is that Bolivar must be turning in his grave uh, to think that uh, uh, his ideas have now been appropriated by a bunch of communists, basically, which is what is happening there. Now, you might think the, you know, there are all sorts of countries I've mentioned at the moment, countries today, but here uh, is somebody from Finland. Uh, and this is a man called Anders Chydenius, uh, known as the Adam Smith of Scandinavia. Uh, that's because in the 1790s he produces a book which is one of the great works of trans, uh, spontaneous order analysis. Uh, he's uh, Finnish, uh, but actually speaks and writes in Swedish, which was normal at the time in Finland. Uh, and again, one of the great founders of classical liberal thought, social thinking, uh, widely known and translated throughout Europe. Many of his books were translated into Latin, which was the lingua franca of the time. Uh, the Finns are still very keen on Latin, by the way. Uh, there's a very popular DJ in Helsinki uh, whose life's work is to translate the works of Elvis Presley into Latin. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know how he's getting on with that. <laughs> the, um, but, so this gives you some idea of the variety of places in which uh, classical liberal movements, politics, ideas spring up in the late 18th and early 19th century. It is not just Britain and the United States. It's Latin America, it's large parts of Northern and Western Europe. Uh, now what then happens is that during the second part of the 19th century, these ideas start to spread outside that original area. They spread into Eastern Europe, they spread into the Middle East, and they spread into other parts of the world. Uh, so what you find, as it says here, uh, is that the ideas start to spread between roughly 1850 and 1920. Now, there are certain Western thinkers who are very, very important. Western thinkers who have a huge impact when they're translated by people in other parts of the world and made available to uh, intellectuals and thinkers in those parts of the world. Uh, Smith is one very important thinker. Uh, David Hume, another. Uh, Herbert Spencer, uh, great Victorian polymath, ardent, hardcore classical liberal. Uh, he is, again, very, very influential, particularly his principles of sociology, uh, but also a number of his uh, other books and works. John Stuart Mill, uh, On Liberty, uh, is one of the most widely translated books of the 19th century. Uh, it's translated into uh, almost 30 languages uh, by the time of Mill's death, which is remarkable when you think that Mill wrote it quite you know, towards the end of his life. It's not just on liberty, though. Uh, his system of logic, uh, his book on utilitarianism, and his manual of political economy are also widely translated. Um, another one who I don't have on the list is Montesquieu. Montesquieu is, again, very widely translated, uh, and particularly influential, it appears, in China. Uh, the Chinese seem to really find something in Montesquieu uh, and appreciate his way of thinking about the world. I think they like the historical and sociological analysis that you get in Montesquieu. Another one is Rousseau. Now, that is interesting because, as I'll be saying in my third talk on this program, uh, Rousseau is in many ways 
a really bad news person. Uh, he is in some ways the origin of pretty much all of the bad ideas that you get in the modern world. Uh, but he's a strange and contradictory figure, Rousseau, because he's also in some ways uh, a liberal. Uh, it's just that he has other elements in his thought which have extremely bad results when you start to work them out. Uh, there's other problems as well with Rousseau, which is to do with his personality, but that's another issue. Um, the, if you read the social contract, the first half of the social contract, you think, my word, this is pure liberalism. And then you get into the second half and you think, oh, my God, what is this? Uh, but the, the point is Rousseau, again, is very, very influential. Um, and his social contract uh, is widely translated and read. However... And this is the third point here, which I mentioned earlier on. What you find is not simply people in other parts of the world uh, reading, say, Mill or Spencer or Rousseau or Smith and thinking, oh, yeah, cool, this is it, and then becoming, if you like, little Englishmen or little Scotsmen, although that's a redundancy, by the way. Um, the, um, what happens instead uh, is that these people in other parts of the world think, Yes, yes, this is very true. This is a great insight. We haven't thought of this before. But it reminds me of this element of my own indigenous tradition. And so what you find all over the world is that people uh, are, if you like, provoked by reading Montesquieu or Smith or whoever to then go and explore their own indigenous intellectual tradition and to develop and articulate those aspects of their indigenous tradition uh, that support or give rise to a philosophy of personal liberty. And that means you get the form of indigenous variants of classical liberalism springing up all over the world in the second half of the 19th century, first part of the 20th century. So, for example, you have this chap, John Mensah Saba. Uh, he is a Ghanaian, as we would say today. He, Fanti, as he would have said, uh, from the Gold Coast, as it was called in those days, British colony. Uh, he is educated initially in Ghana, uh, and then he goes to school in England and then becomes a barrister uh, in the Inns of Court in London. Uh, first African person ever to be called to the bar uh, in London uh, in the 1880s. Uh, he writes a number of works of legal historical scholarship. In particular, he writes a brilliant book about customary law amongst his own people, the Fanti, uh, in which he explores how uh, African institutions had developed in that part of West Africa and how you'd had the development of a system of law uh, which protected and defended individual rights, uh, but did so in a way that was decentralized uh, without need for a strong centralized power. This is actually very common in Africa, by the way. It's a very typical kind of African style of legal system. He also then founded, along with a number of other people, uh, including a guy called E. Caisley Hayford, uh, a thing called the Aborigines Rights Protection Society, uh, which becomes the first major political organization in the Gold Coast. Now, the aim of this society, as the name suggests, was to protect the indigenous property rights and institutions uh, of the local people against the attempts of the British uh, to impose from outside a different system of land law, the main effect of which, oh my God, what a coincidence, who would have predicted this, would have been to take lots and lots of land away from the indigenous Africans and give it to large Western plantation owners who wanted to grow cocoa. Uh, and so what Saba and uh, the others did was to produce an argument 
in which they were ultimately successful because they persuaded the British government ultimately not to go through with this plan in order to protect indigenous property rights. Uh, and at the same time, uh, they developed a theory about how in Africa, the traditional and indigenous forms of law and institutions promoted values which they, uh, the British claimed to adhere to, such as the rule of law, proper procedure, respect for property rights, uh, and individual liberty uh, and development. And basically, the argument that Saba and the others make is, look, you guys, how about standing up for and believing in and actually acting on the things you claim to believe in? Uh, and that is a very common response for people in colonial parts of the world to Europeans. They basically say, well, look, Europeans, colonialists, you claim to be, you know, liberals and you claim to believe in these things. We share your support for these principles, but how about you actually apply them in an honest and sincere way to yourself and your relations with uh, your subject peoples in the colonies? Uh, so he's an example of African liberalism, uh, which appears notably in both the what was later on became Nigeria, the Niger River colony, uh, in the Gold Coast uh, and elsewhere, notably in Sierra Leone, but also, of course, increasingly in South Africa. Well, there's a more complicated story there. Here's another one. This is one of my great heroes. Uh, this is Joachim Nabucco, uh, wearing ambassador's uh, uniform. Uh, he was a truly great man, I think one of the greatest men of the 19th century. Uh, wealthy Brazilian, uh, had a relationship for many years uh, with a remarkable lady who was probably the richest person in the world at the time, Brazilian female entrepreneur. But more to the point from our point of view, he founds the Brazilian Liberal Party in 1868. Uh, and he campaigns for a whole range of issues, uh, freedom of the press, constitutional government, but above all, for the abolition of slavery. Uh, and you have to realize how hugely significant that is in Brazilian, the Brazilian context, because Brazil is the great slave society. 40% of all the slaves taken from Africa in the history of the transatlantic slave trade went to Brazil. Uh, the figure for the United States, by the way, is less than 10%. Uh, that's because in the you know, 17th, 18th century, when the slave trade is at its height, the United States, the American colonies as they were, are actually just a backwater. The real money is made in supplying slaves to the Spanish Empire and Brazil. Uh, so Brazil is a slave society in an extremely profound sense. And if you think that it was difficult to get slavery abolished anywhere else, just think how difficult it was in Brazil. But Nabucco spent 20 years of his life campaigning for uh, the abolition of slavery in Brazil. Uh, and he hit on the strategy of not just trying to get it abolished at the federal level, but crucially, trying to get it abolished in individual states. Uh, and that's what he succeeded in doing. And that led to a kind of domino effect, which uh, undermined the institution of slavery throughout Brazil. Because once slavery was abolished in one state of Brazil, slaves in the neighboring states could then run away uh, to achieve their freedom in that free province, free state. That in turn made keeping slavery going in the neighboring states really, really expensive. Uh, and so there was a kind of cascade effect. And then in 1888, uh, slavery is finally abolished in Brazil. That is the end of, of slavery as a major legally recognized institution anywhere in the world. Uh, and as a Nabucco, one of the truly great men of that century. Uh, and also, a man who had a very clear idea about why, as a liberal, uh, slavery was such a big issue. He wrote a huge book about abolitionism uh, in which he basically articulated the view, which you may be familiar from some of Abraham Lincoln's speeches, that it's impossible to have a free society if a significant part of the people who live in that society, or for that matter, anyone in that society, is a legal slave. 
that the two kinds of uh, institutions cannot be combined. Uh, and he has been he has been seriously traduced and misrepresented by contemporary new left historians who argue that Nabucco is, get, wait for it, a white supremacist who's only worried about slaves uh, because he thinks that they're going to uh, make Brazilian society more African. Uh, well, quite simply, this is clear nonsense because if that was what he was worried about, why on earth would he want to emancipate slaves? And why is it uh, that, in fact, one of his, he's also in favour of, uh, as most liberals were at the time, open borders and the free movement of people into Brazil from other parts of the world, including Portuguese-speaking parts of Africa like Angola? No, that's complete nonsense. And if you actually read his works, it's very, very clear that his uh, support for abolishing slavery has nothing to do with any nonsense like that. It's to do with his belief in individual liberty and the autonomy uh, of all human beings and their right to lead a self-governed life. Um, here is another one, uh, going back to the British Empire. Uh, the British India uh, is one of the classic areas where you get the phenomenon mentioned. This is the man who is the founder uh, of Indian nationalism, but also of Indian liberalism, uh, Dadabai Naraoji. Uh, he's a Parsi. Uh, the Parsis are a very small religious uh, sect. They're Zoroastrians. They live mostly in Bombay. Uh, Dadabai uh, is, uh, again, one of these... Uh, British Empire intellectuals, a great liberal, uh, produces a classic account uh, of exactly how the policies of the British Empire uh, were squeezing the life out of the Indian economy and screwing them over. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't quite understand the economics of it, but he identified what was going on uh, really, really well. What he didn't sort of grasp was that it was the monetary policy of the British in particular that was doing this. Uh, but even so, he described it really, really well. Uh, here's the answer to a pub quiz question, uh, which is that he's the first, in modern terminology, non-white British MP. Uh, he's elected an MP to the British Parliament in 1888 uh, and uh, remains an MP for two years after that. Uh, he's, uh, again... So basically taking, in his case, Parsi and indigenous Hindu thought uh, and developing a form of liberalism uh, that is distinctively Indian, but which draws upon uh, British uh, thought as well. In his case, in particular, John Stuart Mill. And he's the founder of what you might call the liberal element within Indian nationalism, uh, which more later. Uh, the, uh, the early Indian nationalist movement is founded partly by him, like people like him, and partly by a guy called Tilak, uh, who represents the other trend uh, within uh, Indian nationalism, which is the highly uh, collectivist and uh, milit also militantly Hindu element in it. Uh, here, in, uh, also in China, uh, this is a, a man uh, called Yan Fu. Uh, now, he's an important intellectual in late Qing, late Manchu China. Yan Fu is the man who translates most of the works I mentioned into Chinese. Uh, he also writes a whole series of brilliant essays in Chinese for a number of uh, journals. He's a leading figure in what was called the New Thought Movement uh, in late Qing China. Uh, this is an attempt to you draw upon traditional Confucian uh, ideas and to combine and blend them uh, with classical liberal notions, to develop a kind of Confucian uh, liberalism. Uh, this is actually much, much easier than most people would imagine because there's a strong individualist element in neo-Confucian going back to the uh, 12th and particularly the 17th centuries, which Yan Fu and others uh, draw upon. Uh, he's not the only one, however. There are many, many of these people. Uh, so here's uh, another one. Uh, this is a chap called Liang Qi Chao. Uh, 
who is perhaps the leading activist. Yan Fu is more of a kind of intellectual. The chap who sits there writing essays and um, uh, producing books. Uh, of course, you know, uh, easy for him because he had a, a thousand to two thousand characters to play with, rather than one hundred and forty-four. Uh, whereas uh, Liang Qichao is more the kind of political activist, and he's very much involved uh, in the. Uh, political activism that leads ultimately to the overthrow of the Manchu dynasty in 1911, uh, and, but previously uh, radical attempts to reform the regime from within in what was called the Hundred Days of Reform uh, in 1902. Uh, and by the 1920s, these people have created a pretty large and widespread uh, liberal movement in China. Uh, it's particularly strong in Shanghai and the Yangtze Delta, and to a lesser extent in Beijing and Nanjing, uh, but it's spreading amongst the Chinese intelligentsia and elsewhere. Uh, you also have it again in Latin America. Now here, uh, the spur for a lot of development is to understand why Bolivar's uh, success in liberating Latin America from Spanish rule had not led to good results. Uh, and this guy uh, is one of the leading figures in that. It's the, a man called uh, Domingo Faustino Sarmiento. Uh, he's the president of Argentina towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, and he's also one of the great writers of Latin American literature. Uh, he wrote a book called Facundo, or Civilization and Barbarism, uh, which is an account of, an attempt to explain why it was that in Argentina the promise of early liberation had turned into an autocratic despotism uh, under the rule of a man called Rosas. Uh, and what he does in this book and his other writings, and uh, not just him, but the other intellectuals associated with him, is to explore what you might call the social and cultural foundations of a functioning free society. Uh, and he then puts this into effect uh, during his time as president of Argentina. That period, by the way, is the golden era of Argentine history. Under the rule of liberal politicians like Sarmiento, uh, Argentina by 1900 is the fifth richest country in the world. It's now, I think, last time I looked, it's something like the 178th. Uh, so there's been a precipitate decline uh, since then, which is what happens when you elect people like Peron as your, your leader. Uh, and finally, we've got Turkey. Uh, now, uh, in Turkey, you have a whole series of what you might call top-down reforms towards the end of the 19th century, what is known as the Tanzimat, uh, where the sultans think, things are not going very well for us, uh, we're losing a lot of wars, uh, some serious unrest breaking out in the empire, we'd better like, you know, shake things up. And so you get a series of reforms, which they call the Tanzimat, where basically uh, the sultan says, well, okay, I'm going to graciously give you guys uh, some rights and so on. And what you get is the formation of a thing called uh, the Young Ottomans movement. Um, and this is one of the leading figures in the Young Ottoman uh, movement, Namik Kemal. And the Young Ottomans uh, argued that this was not enough. What you needed was a truly constitutional and liberal regime. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of these uh, intellectuals. Namik is only one of them. Ibrahim Shinazi is another important figure. Namik Kamal is perhaps the, the sort of most articulate and clear of the young Ottomans in his, his thinking. Uh, they achieve success, but in 1876, uh, they actually get the Grand Vizier and the Sultan to concede a truly liberal constitution, uh, which uh, the Sultan then overturns two years later. Uh, but the young Ottomans don't give up the fight. Uh, to give you an idea of the flavor of their thinking, um, this is the uh, quote uh, of um, the, which, this is what Namik Kamal said their political ideals were. 
the sovereignty of the nation, the separation of powers, the responsibility of officials, by which he means that officials are under the rule of law, personal freedom, equality, freedom of thought, freedom of press, freedom of association, enjoyment of property, sanctity of the home. Uh, that was his statement of the kind of political ideals. Here you have an interesting case where uh, the, what, it, what the young Ottomans did was to combine uh, Western ideas uh, of the kind I mentioned with uh, particularly Islamic ideas. So this is a form of Islamic liberalism within the context of the Ottoman Empire. So what then happened? Well, as I say here, it's the deluge. Uh, if you look at the period between uh, 1850 and then the early part of the 20th century, what you can see is that these indigenous forms of liberalism are springing up all over the world. Uh, and then suddenly, something happens. And that, of course, is World War I. Now, in some ways, the, uh, things have started to go wrong in some parts of the world before then, notably in Germany. I mentioned that the German liberals were the dominant force in German politics up to the 1860s. What then happened, however, was that German liberalism was uh, disintegrated, not entirely destroyed, but hugely injured uh, by the policies and politics of one man. Uh, that man, of course, was Bismarck. And what Bismarck did when he was recalled uh, from being ambassador to Paris by the King of Prussia and made Prussian chancellor was to devote his life uh, to the destruction of German liberalism. Uh, and he successfully outmaneuvered the liberals, uh, then provoked a split in the ranks of the liberals between so-called national liberals who supported Bismarck's foreign policy and unification and what you might call the true liberals who opposed him, people like Eugen Richter, Ludwig Bamberger and others. Uh, and he was able to successfully undermine liberalism in Germany. So although there were still liberals around under the later years of the Kaiserreich, the Second Reich, they were no longer the leading force in German politics. Now, Bismarck didn't like other people either. He, had, he wasn't very keen on the Catholic Church, uh, and he didn't like socialism. Uh, but he always saw liberalism as his primary enemy. Uh, and he was a truly formidable uh, opponent, I'm afraid. So that was one area where liberalism had gone into recession, if you will, before World War I. Elsewhere, however, it was still very much on the rise. That was true in Russia, for example. Uh, it was true in the Ottoman Empire. It was true uh, in various parts of the British Empire. It was true in China. But then you get World War I. And World War I is a catastrophe in many, many ways, of course. Kills 20 million people, uh, destroys the international financial and monetary system that had been built up during the 19th century, uh, wrecks and destroys many of the trade institutions and the links of the world economy. But what it also leads to is a huge setback for liberalism in many other parts of the world. And what you find uh, is that in all sorts of parts of the world, liberals cease to be the dominant force in politics, the novel force. Uh, in China, you get instead the rise of a kind of uh, collectivist nationalism in the shape of the KMT, the Kuomintang under Chiang Kai-shek, uh, and earlier Sun Yat-sen, who's a kind of marginal figure. Uh, subsequently to that, of course, you get Chinese communism and, and Mao Zedong. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, Arab uh, liberalism had been very powerful in the years around World War I and just after, as we'll see in a moment. But it was increasingly supplanted by a form of ideology which was essentially European fascism transplanted to the Middle East. The ideology of the Ba'ath Party and people like Michael Aflac. 
Uh, similarly, in India, the liberal tradition of Indian nationalism that Dadabai Naroji had founded continued, uh, but it was increasingly supplanted in the Indian Congress Party uh, by a different kind of politics, which was uh, aggressively nationalistic and, above all, collectivist. And the main thing that happens in the aftermath of World War I throughout the world is the rise of collectivism. It's the growth of collectivist forms of politics around the world, and the liberals all over the world find that they're suddenly on the back foot uh, and they're not uh, setting the agenda anymore. In Latin America, for example, you get the rise of politics like that of the Estado Novo of Vargas in Brazil, uh, an explicitly almost quasi-fascist kind of populism that rules Brazil during the 1930s. Uh, obviously, you have Peron in Argentina, uh, and you have a whole bunch of other bad stuff of that kind taking place elsewhere in Latin America, notably the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution uh, you have a whole series, you have the establishment of the rule of the, my favourite political party, the PRI, uh, the Party of the Institutional Revolution. Uh, what a name for a political party that is, eh? Um, there are the odd exceptions in Latin America where liberalism still survives as a major force, such as Chile uh, and also uh, parts of some parts of Central America like Costa Rica, but these are the exceptions. So suddenly there's a huge setback. And what has happened as a result of this is that the rise of liberalism and the development of liberal ideas in places like the Middle East, China, India during the late 19th century has been forgotten. Or to the extent that it's remembered, they're seen only as the progenitors, the ancestors of the subsequent socialist or collectivist uh, anti-imperialist revolutionaries like Kayan Kashek or Mao. And so their ideas are systematically misrepresented uh, and forgotten. Uh, there are some who hold on though uh, there are some people who, in the face of great obstacles uh, in the central part of the 20th century, hold on to liberal beliefs in other parts of the world. Now, very often, this is in the face of terrible oppression. Uh, not always, but very frequently. Uh, so, in India, for example, uh, you have this chap here. Um, he's called Chakravati Rajagopalachari. Um, that's a bit of a mouthful, so he was normally known as Rajaji. Uh, G is a kind of term of respect that you stick on the end of a name in, in Indian. Uh, Raja G was one of uh, Nehru and Gandhi's close uh, colleagues during the campaign for Indian independence. Uh, but after uh, the uh, achievement of independence in the 1950s, he split with Nehru uh, because he disapproved both of Nehru's uh, socialist economic policies uh, but also, uh, he disapproved of what he saw as the increasingly illiberal tendencies of Nehru's government, the tendencies towards authoritarianism uh, and suppression of individual dissent. Now, to be fair to Nehru, he is not a homicidal maniac like, say, Mao Zedong, uh, so things never got as bad in India as they did in other parts of the world. But even so, uh, Rajaji and others were uh, alarmed by this, and in the early 1960s, uh, they set up an explicitly classical liberal party, uh, the Swatantra Party. Uh, this was led by Rajaji himself and this man here, uh, Minu Vasani, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, most important liberal politicians uh, in uh, subsequent uh, Indian history. And the, for the whole of the 1960s, early 1970s, the Swatantra Party is one of the two main opposition parties in what they call the Lok Sabha, uh, the uh, uh, Indian parliament. Uh, it's 
the only other major opposition is the Jana Sang, which later on develops into the current governing party of India, the BJP. But that's a party of Hindu nationalism, uh, which is not at all liberal, to put it mildly. Uh, so you have some people here who, in the face of great obstacles, because uh, the control of all of the instruments of broadcasting, communication, and other state power by the Congress party was overwhelming. Uh, they keep the flag of liberalism flying in India, and they continue to develop uh, the ideas of liberalism. They do ultimately uh, gain victory, if you will, because in 1991, uh, Manmohan Singh, the uh, Congress uh, finance minister, actually puts into effect a large part of the economic programme of the Swatantra Party. And it's since then that India has uh, suddenly had an economic renaissance. Uh, here is uh, a leading figure from Egypt. Uh, this is uh, uh, El Said. Uh, he is a very important Egyptian intellectual, great Egyptian liberal, great fan of John Stuart Mill, uh, constantly argued that the principles of on liberty were the way forward for Egypt, uh, faced enormous opposition uh, from uh, all quarters uh, throughout most of his life in Egypt. Uh, he was arrested several times by Nasser's government. Uh, he faced death threats from the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he was... Uh, in many ways a rather isolated figure. He was a strong critic of the ideology of pan-Arabism uh, and inserted, uh, instead, uh, the, asserted instead the idea of a distinct Egyptian identity. Uh, regarded in some ways as the kind of dean or leading figure of Egyptian literature uh, and one of the great figures, as I say, of Egyptian liberalism. He, he died relatively recently, only 25 years ago, uh, at quite an advanced age. But again, this is somebody who uh, holds uh, up the ideas in the face of much worse oppression than people faced in India. Uh, here, in communist China, uh, is one of the uh, most interesting cases, a man called Gao Jun. Now, Gao Jun uh, is the most pure case of, you like, the... Uh, indigenous development of liberalism. He's actually a communist, a leading communist, uh, but he's also smart chap. And in 1952, he is detected as having rightist deviationist ideas. Um, and he's arrested and sent off for several years of, quote, compulsory re-education, unquote. Uh, which involved lots of the usual kind of stuff you get in prison camps, uh, not to mention a significant amount of torture. Uh, while he's in the prison camp, uh, he sort of continues to think, and he develops an interesting critique of uh, Chinese communism. Uh, he's then uh, let out, and he manages to acquire a sort of academic position. Uh, and he remains in this place, still developing his thoughts throughout the 1960s. Then the Cultural Revolution comes along, and he is subject to another bout of re-education, and this time he spends an even longer period in prison, uh, very lucky to be alive. And while he's there, uh, he basically writes out and develops a whole series of what are basically liberal analyses. And if you look at his writing, there's an interesting kind of evolution, which he starts off a fairly orthodox communist, he then becomes a, a market socialist who thinks that uh, you can have socialism, but it needs to use markets. The planned economy is never going to work. Uh, he then develops a critique of Marxism, and he finally ends up by effectively, uh, on his own bat, uh, reinventing the wheel and articulating a form of Chinese liberalism. And then right at the very end of his life, he actually discovers, yes, there were all these other people out there earlier on in Chinese history who'd already had these ideas, uh, and he kind of integrates it together. His works are published in Chinese in the 1890s. 
uh, and they've, they've had and ha continue to have a considerable influence on uh, thought in China, both in terms of the government party, but also uh, very much in terms of inspiring the opposition to the Communist Party and its rule uh, in China. One of the key ideas he comes up with uh, is that the great thing about a market economy and a free society is what he calls criticality or the capacity for criticism. What he means by that is that you've got a, in a free society and in a free economy, uh, things are constantly being subject to criticism, held up to examination, and people are constantly trying to work out how to do things better. Uh, and he said that is what accounts for progress. It's only individual choice, individual freedom of action that will lead to an improvement in the human condition uh, and a growth of uh, human well-being more generally. Uh, and his argument is that is why uh, the idea of socialism is simply never going to work because it lacks that crucial quality. Uh, so he's and, and, and the kind of this is somebody who really, really did. Uh, you know, suffer for uh, their beliefs and for the kind of free thinking that they were engaged in. Now, what you're now seeing finally is a revival. Uh, there are now, uh, there's a revival uh, of classical liberal ideas uh, all over the world. Uh, this is going on very much in Egypt at the moment, uh, also in Turkey, uh, also in India, in China, uh, in uh, other parts of the Middle East and in Latin America. But it's worth saying that actually the situation they face is much more difficult in some ways than the one that their forebearers faced in the 18th, second half of the 19th century. Uh, they're facing very, very serious repression. In Turkey, for example, Erdogan's government has arrested thousands of people, uh, fired an enormous number of university professors, uh, people in the courts. Uh, that lots and lots of people have been uh, given an incredibly hard time, basically, by his government uh, for defending liberal principles against the kind of authoritarian populism that Erdogan uh, is pushing. Uh, Turkish society, I think it's fair to say, is now deeply, deeply divided. It's split pretty much down the middle uh, between supporters of Erdogan and supporters of, of the, his, his opponents, really. But one of the things that's happening uh, as a result of this, is the coalescing of a much more explicitly kind of liberal view amongst Erdogan's opponents. Uh, and the ideas of the Tanzimat and of the young Ottoman era are now enjoying quite a revival in Turkey. People are going back to them. Uh, in Egypt, following the uh, overthrow of the Mubarak government in the Arab Spring and then the subsequent uh, debacle with the Muslim uh, League being in power and then the, the military taking office is where they are at the moment. Again, you've had a sudden upsurge uh, of liberal thinking. Now, uh, this, they, they like um, Al-Sayed, they have to face attacks from several quarters. Egyptian liberals are at constant risk of assassination by the Muslim Brotherhood uh, or other Islamic fundamentalists, but also of being arrested by the Egyptian secret police. But they're still very much doing this. In China, there are all sorts of people uh, who are flying the flag for liberty against the Communist Party uh, and its form of government. There's also been uh, a recent upsurge, as you probably know, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, where the sort of amazing symbol that has come to be used is that of the umbrella, uh, which you would not think of as being a symbol of anything, much less revolution, uh, but which in Hong Kong has come to be seen as the symbol of a movement uh, which asserts uh, individual liberty and uh, autonomy in the face of the increasingly heavy-handed rule uh, of uh, Beijing and its associates. Uh, 
And so what you're seeing, as I say, is a revival. Now, the interesting thing is that what this revival involves uh, is in increasingly, once again, the rediscovery of indigenous forms and traditions. Now, this process is only uh, just starting, uh, but it's still uh, very much underway. Now, uh, last week, I was over at a uh, one-week uh, event in Nairobi. Uh, lots of young African uh, libertarians from all over the uh, continent. Several things I could take away with that, but two I'll share with you. One of them is that I was extremely impressed uh, with the courage, the commitment uh, of these young Africans and the kind of uh, obstacles they faced, both practical and, uh, in the case, you know, the political case of oppression, and how they were prepared to uh, see through these things. One of the people who was there uh, had been recently beaten up severely by uh, the police in Ethiopia, where he lives, about a year ago, uh, so severely that he suffered quite severe head injuries. He was touch and go whether he would actually survive. Uh, several of them had had experiences of being arrested by the police. Uh, in one case, a chap from Uganda, an actual interview with the president himself, who suggested that maybe he should just take a few thousand dollars and bugger off to the United States and get a, get a further degree and never come back to Uganda, uh, which he um, uh, turned down. Uh, so these are people, extremely inspiring, uh, courageous people, uh, with an extraordinarily strong commitment to the principles of liberty, uh, and one that is... Uh, in some ways tested in the fire, as you might say. Uh, it's all very well and very easy uh, to say that you're in favour of ideas uh, when you, you know that this is not going to lead to people pounding on your door in the middle of the night uh, and you're being arrested by uh, the agents of the state uh, or you're being sent to prison uh, for lengthy periods of time with no legal recourse. So these are people, like I say, who are actually prepared to, as you say here in the States, step up to the plate and do things when it's very, very difficult. The other thing that I took away from that event was the degree to which these young uh, African libertarians were starting to explore indigenous African institutions. Uh, and they were starting to explore their own indigenous traditions of liberty, the free institutions that had existed in Africa before the colonial uh, governments were imposed upon them, uh, and which, despite the best efforts of uh, the British and the French, are still, uh, and the Belgians and other colonialists, are still very much in place and still functioning in many parts of Africa. And functioning, it has to be said, much better and to a far, you know, far the greater degree of uh, success than the uh, official African government uh, bodies and institutions. And so you, I, you can see, uh, and I saw just in this one brief encounter, how, how just as happened in the 19th century, you're starting to see uh, the exploration of uh, indigenous traditions of liberty in the light of the insights brought uh, from Western ideas. And it's worth saying, finally, that these people are the true radicals. Uh, one of the ways in which political debate about politics in what we used to call the third world is framed uh, is that basically, unless you are a revolutionary socialist, a Hugo Chavez fan or something of that kind, then you're an apologist for the status quo. Uh, the radicals, the people who are supposed to be seeking to overthrow the bad things that are going on in the world, are always couched as being part of the second international uh, or uh, coming from some kind of revolutionary posture, uh, whether that be socialism, radical Islam, or some other uh, ideology of that kind. But in fact, uh, it's very clear uh, when you actually look at what is going on in these parts of the world that the true radicals are the classical liberals. 
Uh, it's the liberals in places like India, China, Africa and Latin America who are the ones who are posing the difficult questions and who are the ones who are actually proposing a radical break uh, with the kinds of not just political institutions but also, to revert to the point I made about Argentina and Sarmiento, the folkways, uh, the customs, the ways of living, if you will, which are not conducive to liberty and development. And these people, therefore, are the true radicals. Remember, the word radical means someone who goes to the root of things. Uh, it comes from the Greek radix, just like radish. Um, and uh, they are increasingly, they're the people who are doing it, who are asking the fundamental questions. Now, the interesting question is, why are they not perceived this way? Uh, I think they are perceived this way by the bad guys. Uh, just as, why did Bismarck, uh, despite the huge threat he faced from socialism later on in his career, uh, why was it that he always thought that people like Eugen Richter uh, were his real enemies? It was the German liberals he wanted to destroy. Uh, he could get along with the socialists, basically. He could cut a deal with them. Uh, similarly, uh, authoritarian regimes around the world, uh, the people they really, really have it in for, the people they are utterly ruthless about, are the liberals. In China, the Communist Party is paranoid uh, about uh, the spread of liberal ideas in China. Uh, these are the people they really come down on very heavily, the ones they send to prison, to uh, the Lao Gai, the Chinese uh, prison system, uh, the people who are, if they're very lucky, put under house arrest, uh, and if they're not so fortunate, subjected to all kinds of truly terrible treatment. It's because they know and they realize that these people are the real threat to their position. Uh, because when you're dealing with opponents who simply want the same kind of power that you have got, you can make a deal with them. Uh, if you're dealing with simply another bunch of people who want power, if obviously you rather wouldn't share power, but in the last, uh, if push comes to shove, you can always share power with them. Uh, whereas when you're dealing with people who want to dissolve power, who want to remove not just your power, but the whole regime of power that you draw your privileged position from, uh, those are a different question. They're the people you are really bothered about because they're a much more fundamental threat uh, to your position than uh, someone who is merely a competitor for power with you. Uh, and that is why in country after country around the world now, it's the liberals who are the true uh, radicals, the true revolutionaries, uh, and the ones who are uh, no, leading, uh, leading the way, if you will, in the struggle for uh, constitutional governments and all of the other things that we hold dear. Now, it, it's worth saying, interestingly, uh, to speculate about the future, about whether or not, in fact, um, truly effective liberalism is more likely to be found uh, in these parts of the world, these other parts of the world, than in what you might call the original homeland of classical liberal ideas, which is Western Europe uh, and uh, the uh, United States or the British Commonwealth. I certainly think it's true that you're more likely to get genuine liberalism in Francophone Africa than you are in France, sadly. Um, but it is an interesting question as to whether or not, in fact, we may well not see in the uh, subsequent uh, years a process in which, just as nine, in the 19th century, Chinese uh, and African and Latin American uh, intellectuals and thinkers learned from Western thinkers like Spencer Mill and the others uh, and adopted their ideas, it may well be the case that in the next 50 years it is people like ourselves who will learn from the analyses, the arguments developed 
uh, by uh, thinkers like Gaojun and others in other parts of the world. And what we should finally, to conclude, realize from this is that the cause of liberty is not a cause that knows boundaries. It's not a particular project of a particular kind of the world, part of the world. It is not a kind of way of thinking about the world that is peculiar to, that only makes sense in the worldview of a particular kind of uh, people, a particular ethnicity, a particular geographical part of the world. That kind of uh, polylogism, as it's called, uh, is untrue in all sorts of ways, but it's particularly untrue in this case. Uh, the cause of liberty is one that human beings of all kinds in all times and places have found dear. Uh, and if you want to understand uh, the movement for liberty, what you have to realize is that it is not simply a Western, much less an Anglo-Saxon movement, it's a truly global one which has branches and expressions in all parts of the world. Uh, this is true historically, and it remains true today. Uh, so at that point, I'll stop. So the mic's up, so. Do you want to go to the mic? No, I'll just talk loud. Okay, well, we got, we got a question over here first, so I'll call you second. Thank you. Um, my question is about the uh, cultural and political minorities around the world that are seeking self-governance um, mm. and seeking, you know, to secede from their current home country or to form their own, so, so you know, Kurds or... Catalonia. Um, what do you think the relationship is between these movements and classical liberalism? And do you think there is room for self-governance in these groups in the classical liberal style? Uh, that's a really good question. And that is a uh, been historically a huge issue for liberals uh, around the world. In the first part of the 19th century, most liberals in Europe were also nationalists. Uh, so they supported the right of national self-determination. The great classic liberal case was the cause of Italian unification, as espoused by people like Mazzini, Garibaldi, and others. Uh, and if, if one of the ways you can tell if you, know, you could tell if somebody in 19th-century England was a liberal uh, was that they would have a uh, a tea mug with, in the shape of Giuseppe Garibaldi's head. That kind of thing. He was a great kind of iconic figure for Victorian liberals. Uh, however, what emerged in the late 19th century was that there's something slightly problematic about this, uh, and that the relationship between liberalism and nationalism, national self-determination, is ambiguous and ambivalent. Uh, I think India is the case where you can see that most clearly. So there's one long tradition of Indian, the quest for Indian self-government, uh, with people like Dadabhai Naroji and Raja Ji, uh, which... Uh, sees self-government as being a way of promoting the values of liberty, basically. The argument is that you are not going to have individual liberty and all the things that go with it if you are a subject people ruled by a colonial power. And the argument is that that is bad both for the people who are ruled over and the people who are doing the ruling, because being an imperial power uh, also destroys liberty at home in the imperial country. That's one of the very powerful arguments that liberals make. On the other hand, you have the other tradition, which is that the goal of independence is to promote a kind of collective national project uh, uh, in which individual uh, liberty and individual self-realization is subordinated to this kind of overall collective project. And that's deeply anti-liberal. 
And the um, ideology of nationalism, the assertion of this kind of collective national identity to which you have to subordinate your uh, individual goals, purposes, aspirations and the like, uh, that's an extremely powerful and very, very dangerous idea. Now, as far as these movements for autonomy and um, independence around the world go, my general default position is that I favour breaking up countries. So my general default position is that I favour uh, movements for secession. The reason for this is the pragmatic one that um, a ruling group uh, who control a small part of the planet's surface and population can do a lot less mischief than people who control a large part of the planet and its population. So if Hitler had gone back to Austria at the end of World War I uh, and become dictator of Austria, that would have been very bad news for the Austrians and particularly for Austria's Jews, of course, but it would not have been a problem for the rest of Europe because by 1919, Austria is just a rinky-dinky chocolate box little country. Um, with lots of beautiful buildings and great pastry, but nothing much in the way of military power. Of course, the problem is he stayed in Germany. He got into control of a very large, very powerful country uh, with 70-odd million people in it. Uh, so to the extent that you can break up large countries into smaller ones, I'm always in favour of that. The other practical reason for that, which is a liberal reason, is that public choice problems are significantly less severe in small countries. Um, there is actually empirical work by economists which shows that... Um, if you, uh, the optimal size for a country in terms of the quality of governance is between about 2 million and 7 million people. Uh, below 2 million, unless you're a tax haven or an oil producer, uh, you don't have enough tax revenue to provide core public goods. Above 7 million, the, um, the public choice problems of voter ignorance and uh, capture of the political process by special interests become much more severe. But when you're in a really small country, like, say, Iceland or Luxembourg, you know who the politicians are. You bump into them in the grocery store. The whole political process has a slightly more transparent quality. Now, that makes the chances of Liberal government uh, higher. Finally, to wrap up, because I've gone on too long already, however, despite the fact that on a pragmatic basis I support things like the movement for Kurdish separatism in the Middle East, and I support breaking up most large countries, strongly in favour of Scottish independence, for example. Um, I don't think that that's an end in itself, nor that in and of itself it will promote liberty. Uh, what is important, of course, is that you then have a liberal regime in any country that's been, you know, become independent in that way. Uh, so, uh, so, as I say, the, the connection between the two is difficult. I'll just throw an idea out here, which is that several liberals at the end of the 19th century began to think quite seriously, and also socialists, to be fair, began to think quite seriously about what the problems were of having a territorial state based upon national identity. And they came up with an idea which Tom actually introduced me first to many, many years ago, which is called technically political pluralism. And this is the idea of having non-territorial sovereignty. Uh, so the idea was originally formulated as a solution to the problems of the Habsburg Empire, and the idea was that you would have about 20 parliaments in the Habsburg Empire, each of which would make law for one particular national group, regardless of where they lived. Uh, so if you were a Czech and you were living in Vienna, you would be governed by a Czech parliament. If you were a German, you would be governed by a German parliament, no matter where you lived in the... And what that meant was that one ethnic or national group would not rule over another. Uh, and it means that you avoid what uh, has happened in the 20th century, which is either ethnic cleansing uh, to create homogeneous territories or 
uh, partition, which has generally never worked out very well, um, it, whenever it's been tried. But that's an idea which has never actually found, although it's been explored by a number of both liberal and socialist intellectuals, it's never actually been worked out. But it's worth, it's something to worth thinking about, I think. Yes, you had, you go to next, yeah. Sorry, where does who fall? Oh, Ataturk, right. Uh, Ataturk is not a liberal, okay? Uh, great man in many ways. Uh, a man who achieves an amazing amount. I mean, he totally transforms Turkish society. Uh, there's a reason why everywhere you go in Turkey, there's a statue of Ataturk. Uh, what is Ataturk's ideology? Um, it's basically, uh, well, it's, it's French, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and it's basically Jacobin nationalism. That, that's where his ideology is. Now, uh, what Ataturk does, to be fair to him, is to create what ultimately becomes a kind of constitutional regime. Uh, and it's a regime with a number of strict limits, but it also has a particular ideology associated with it, which is an ideology of collective national adherence to a set of ideals and principles. Uh, and these are supposed to override and trump individual uh, beliefs or desires in many cases. Now, the classic example of this was that uh, under the Kemalist regime, which I think no longer exists because Erdogan has destroyed it, really, or is in the process of dismantling it, um, if you were a devout practicing Muslim Turk, uh, your life was made really quite difficult. You couldn't work in the public service. Uh, you would not be allowed to publicly express your faith in various ways, like wearing a veil and all this kind of thing. Um, and that, that reflects the fact that although there are good things about Kemalism, it's not liberal, basically. Uh, it, it's, kind of, it's more towards the authoritarian end, but not very far towards it, because to be fair, you know, Ataturk did create a broadly constitutional regime. It's worth saying, by the way, something I only discovered recently. The, I'm sure you're all familiar with the concept or idea of the deep state. Uh, lots of talk about that in the United States today, about how the deep state is out to get Donald Trump and all that. Um, the, the concept of the deep state is actually developed by Turks, and it refers to, it refers to Kemalism. Uh, the deep state is certain people embedded in the state apparatus, uh, not just in the military, although a lot of them in the military, but also in things like the judiciary and so on, whose role is to preserve the Kemalist uh, settlement. Uh, so that's their contribution to political theory. Right, okay, over there. Sorry. Oh, hi, sorry. <laughs> um, I have a, a, well, potentially a two-part question, depending on your answer to the first part. Um, so you picked up today's talk um, in the late 18th century. Yeah. I'm wondering if you would uh, consider uh, German and Swiss Anabaptists as the 16th century as precursors of classical liberalism. No, so not at all. Uh, really? Not at all. Uh, these are uh, radical Protestants of that kind are more like the, if you want to draw a comparison with the modern world, they're more like Islamic fundamentalists. Um, they're, they're religious fanatics, basically, who want to create a millenarian regime, partly because they believe the, the actual millennium, you know, Jesus' second coming and thousand-year rule, is imminent. Uh, these are really bad people, actually. Um, and whenever they had a chance of getting power, the result was pretty catastrophic. Now, on the other hand, what you do get, the people who you might say, uh, I wouldn't say they're progenitors of classical liberalism, but their, some of their ideas feed into it, are people like Moravians, now, technically, they're Anabaptists because they believe in adult 
yes, baptism, re-baptism. Uh, but they're not like the actual Reformation era Anabaptists. So these are the kind of people who then emigrate to Pennsylvania and other parts of North America. That's um, part two of my question. Yeah, that's the people. You, no, okay, that's it, so yeah. the, that's exactly the, the part of the population that I'm talking about. So yeah, yeah. the second part of the question would be, would you make any connections between those German and Swiss Anabaptists who leave uh, Europe in the early 17th century mm. uh, end up in Germantown, in yeah, Montgomery yeah. County, Pennsylvania, and, and their thought, maybe their version of Reformation, right, which may be different mm. from your earlier characterization, yeah. and early thinking um, and expressions of American uh, classical yeah. liberalism? That's a really good question. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I mean, that sounds like a really good PhD topic to me, Thank actually. Um, the, I'll be working you know, on that soon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> g given the, you know, the enormous German influence on Pennsylvania um, and the, the degree to which the ideas of people like Moravians are you know, in sync with the other ideas of Quakers, yeah. uh, it could well have had an influence, well, but I honestly Yamash don't know the, the answer. Yeah. I mean, the, the crucial thing there is theological voluntarism. That's, yes, that's exactly. what leads to liberalism. It's the idea, uh, first of all, of a personal, unmediated, one-to-one -one relationship Correct. with the deity. And secondly, it's the idea that the church um, is simply a gathering of believers. Uh, now, you do find that to a less radical form in, say, congregationalism uh, or baptism, particular baptism, but it's particularly strong and purely expressed in Quakerism, but also in uh, the Moravian churches. Uh, and you can see quite clearly how that can lead to an idea of societies also being governed in the same way. Uh, so maybe it did. I don't know. I mean, like and, I say, and that... how they self-govern today. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I don't know. I mean, that, like I say, that would be a really good PhD thesis, actually, I think. But I, I don't Take know. Honestly, don't know Thank the you. Okay, great. I'd like you to comment on um, the etymology of, of liberalism and how it's understood in a uh, Anglo-Saxon con uh, context and in particular in an American context, yeah. how it's changed from liberalism to now classical liberalism and, and a current uh, political stance on liberals and liberalism, leftism. Uh, could you comment on that for me? Um, well, this is extremely annoying for anyone who's not an American, maybe for an American as well. Uh, everywhere else in the world, liberalism means classical liberalism. It means limited government, free market economics, the rule of law. Um, and particularly in continental Europe, this is just generally known. Everyone knows this. That's what the word has meant for 200 years, and it still means that. Uh, that's why, you know, all the, the leftists in France and Germany will tell you that their, their great enemy is liberalism. They don't bother sticking a neo-prefix on it either. Um, uh, unfortunately, in the early 20th century, the 1920s, um, the um, certain groups in the United States appropriated the term. It's people like John Dewey who are responsible for this. Uh, the interesting question is, why did they get away with it? Uh, previously, uh, they'd called themselves progressives, uh, and their ideology was progressivism. And that, you know, fair enough. That's a reasonable label. You can quarrel with it, but, you know, it's their own label. And increasingly, you know, and... and it, it, it had a commonly understood meaning. Uh, so, A, why did they then appropriate the term liberal? Well, uh, that's because it made what they wanted to do sound nice and more appealing to Americans. Because if you can claim, this is a society, I think, where there is a strong kind of instinctive or visceral attachment to the idea of doing your own thing and liberty. 
And so if these progressives who are in favour of top-down social reforms, basically, say that, oh, what we're doing is really all about liberty, uh, that actually is a way of, like, sugarcoating the pill, if you will, and making it more palatable to the average American. Um, so you can see that's why they did it. The question is, why did others let them get away with it? And I think the problem is, in some sense, the actual hegemony of liberal ideas in the United States. There is no genuine conservatism in the United States, in my view. Um, people who call them, most of the people who call themselves conservatives in the US are basically just conservative liberals or moderate liberals. The exception to that is the South, but the South is always an exception in everything. Um, and um, so what, I'm, what that means is that because liberalism is such a widely accepted set of ideas from the founding onwards, and the arguments increasingly in American politics are about how to interpret and apply those ideas in particular uh, circumstances and situations. Therefore, there isn't an explicit liberal party that will defend the right to own that label and that idea. Uh, and uh, as a result, it's let go by default. And it's extremely irritating because it means that now here in the US, you have an understanding of what the word means, which is completely different from that of everybody else in the world. And it leads to all kinds of you know, difficulties in translation and clumsy circumlocutions and things like that. Uh, however, I am actually, what I think we should do is we should reclaim the word. And I am actually quite hopeful that this can be done, partly because the left in the United States increasingly doesn't like the name liberal. Um, they're no longer, they increasingly have gone back to using the word progressive to describe themselves. Uh, that is the label that the people in, say, the Bernie Sanders movement and others will use for themselves. They don't want to be called liberals. Well, you know, that, which is good, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but also, I think what has happened, in some ways, the bad thing that's happened in the United States in the 20th century has been the growth of explicitly anti-liberal ideologies on both left and right, which is what I'll be saying something about in my... Uh, final talk. And what that means, I think, is that to the extent that liberalism is perhaps more embattled and no longer the consensus, it actually becomes easier for people who uh, believe in those ideas to say, look, that's our label. We're, we're going to use it. So I think what, what you should do in this country is launch a serious campaign to actually reclaim the label. For okay. Um, the thing is this, uh, what, what is it to be a conservative? I mean, the word itself contains the understanding. A conservative, rightly understood, is someone who wishes to conserve and preserve the established and settled order of things. It's somebody who wants to preserve and conserve uh, a particular established set of institutions and the political social order of which they are a part. Uh, now, this tends to be associated with other ideas like uh, reverence for the past, scepticism about reason, scepticism about, uh, you know, fundamental movements to make the world over, that kind of thing. Burkean conservatism, in other words. Uh, in the continental French tradition, it has a rather more radical uh, aspect to it. Um, French conservatives are, you know, really robust conservatives, should you say. Uh, the same is true of Spanish ones, by the way. Now... Um, the thing is, if you're in England, for example, historically, what is a conservative? Well, a conservative is someone who upholds things like the monarchy, uh, the traditional British constitution and its practices, uh, the established church. There's a good reason why the Tory party, the Anglican church, was described as the Tory party at prayer. Uh, 
people who support a particular kind of quasi-aristocratic social compact in which you have an elite who have a kind of paternal responsibility for the lower orders in society. You can't have that in the United States. You've never had an aristocracy. Uh, since the First Amendment, you have not had an established, you've never had an established national church. You've not had established churches at the state level since the 1820s. Uh, you do not have uh, the kind of um, British class system, which, you know, uh, both you know, the source of most British comedy, but the bane of our lives in many ways. Uh, and so basically, if you are a conservative in the United States in the sense of wanting to maintain the established order, the established order you're trying to maintain is a liberal one. And so, you know, it, it's, um, there's something kind of uh, self-contradictory or oxymoronic about the idea of an American conservative, it seems to me. With, I could say, there's a special exception to that, which is the South, uh, for complicated historical reasons. You can be a genuine conservative of the European style if you're a Southerner, uh, but that's something slightly different. And it's obviously, for obvious historical reasons, a very uh, difficult subject to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, one minute. Right, quick answer. Uh, the question I have is uh, Muslim faith. And today the most common talk about is the hegemonic Muslims of Iran are the ultra-conservative fundamentalists, Wahhabism, and yet there is a much broader Muslim faith across the world. Yeah. Do you see any meaningful sh roots of liberalism in the Muslim faith that will be solve some of our problems that we have internationally. Yes, I do. Um, what, one of the things you don't realize is three things very quickly, because I've got one minute. One is that in the 19th and early 20th century, there's a great movement of liberalism within Islam, both in the sense of political liberalism, but also theological and social liberalism. The second thing is, where has that all gone wrong? And what is the problem we have now? I don't think the Iranians are a problem particularly. The Iranian government has this kind of Islamic veneer, but it's basically transformed into an Iranian national state. The real problem, quite simply, is the Saudis. The Saudis spend billions upon billions of dollars every year promoting a really extreme, fundamentalist, obscurantist version of the religion. Uh, and I have seen firsthand, because I was married to a Pakistani lady for eight years, just how devastatingly destructive that has been. Everywhere you go in the world, the only mosques that have money are ones that take Saudi money. And if you take Saudi money, you've got to buy into the Saudis' agenda. Uh, and I am, quite frankly, disgusted by the way in which Western powers uh, overlook this and pander to and suck up to the Saudis. We know why they're doing it. It's because they have oil, basically. Uh, because the, the influence they've had on the world is incredibly destructive. Uh, just think what would happen uh, if David Duke and the KKK came into control of the world's largest oil reserves and used it pr to promote their ideology as true Christianity. Uh, what kind of effect would that have over a space of 40, 50 years? And that's what we're talking about. So that's the main problem. There's nothing inherent about the religion that should lead it to be profoundly anti-liberal. It's the devastating effect that the Saudis have had on the practice of the religion worldwide uh, that is doing this. Okay. Stop there.